0: You're listening to a message from Christian Life Ministries in Coventry, a dynamic, growing church in the heart of the nation. We pray that God will speak to you through this word and impact your life for His glory. So how are you this evening? So a few of you may have been here this morning, probably most of you were not. So let me cover some ground just to get to know each other a little bit, and if you were um, if you were here this morning, go ahead and check your Instagram and go ahead and post your picture on that while I get the others up to date. That's a joke. Don't do that. Put your phone away right now. Put it away. So I'm the father of eight children. You should clap. You, definitely. If you're gonna, yeah. Come on. you got to clap for that. So if you're, if you're married, then you know what that is. If you're single, you go on, that's ah, a piece of cake. Yeah, try it. Try it. In fact, i got to... <laughs> We've got all different kinds. The personality types, if you take a look at the different personality types that people have, we've got all of it in our family. Um, and there's a, sometimes you look at a kid, if you've if you got kids, sometimes you look at a kid and you're looking in a mirror back at yourself when you were younger. Anybody ever have that experience? So my, I, I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to. And, and she's not here anyway, so um, if I could find it. Now I can't work my phone. Um, it's a It's a 10 which I recently got because someone said I should, but I hate new technology, so yeah, here it is. So she says to me, hello, Father, we're coming into town next week. They live in Virginia. Is there any way that we could do uh, a baby dedication for their firstborn son, Nolan, after the service? I said, sure. Uh, Give me which day and which service? She said, in a week, the 31st. Which service is your last one that day? I said, I'll be in Colorado Springs on March 31st. She said, cancel it. She's me. That's what I would say. So I just, I thought, okay, I'll play this off. I'll send back all laughy faces. You know, the crying, laughy face. You know what I'm talking about? And she said, don't you want to see your favorite grandchild? Now, this, this you don't know unless you're here this morning. We have 24 grandchildren. And, yeah. And Nolan is the youngest one. Her son, so all of a sudden, he goes right to the top of the pile. I, I, I said, um... I said, just play it off, I said, of course, but I'm stuck in Colorado Springs. I mean, we planted that church a year ago. I'm visiting it. I mean, it's part of, it's been on the books forever. I can't help it that she decided to come to Fable and dedicate her kid. She said, I'd like, I liked how you didn't say one of your favorite grandkids. I'm glad you agreed. He's the best. He's the cutest. He's your favorite. I just sent more laughing faces than shut it down. I, I don't know what to say to her. You know, there's one. But I don't know, how many of you have, anybody here have kids? You got a bunch of kids? So how many, have, how many have boys? Boys, girls? Girls are more complicated, right? Don't go there. He said don't go there. I tell you what, I've been married 40 years and I'm still discovering my wife. And that's a good thing. I mean, when we got married, I said, I'm going to make a lifelong search to discover what her needs are and how to meet them and how to love her the way God intended that to happen. Anybody else? Guys, you with me on that? Yeah. But sometimes, I mean, ladies are just deeper than we are. You know, you get a couple of guys together, something's happened, they're watching a football game, you grunt, he grunts. We understand. That's a whole conversation right there in, <laughs> right there in that. But it, it's just so, you know, there's this guy who's a motorcycle guy and he was, he was a biker and he was in California. And so he's just delight. God just loved him and, and he's a delight to the Lord. So God spoke to him, stopped him on his motorcycle one day and said, You know, Frank, I just want to do something for you. Just anything, I'll do it for you. He said, You know, Lord, here's what I'd like. I'd like a bridge from California to Hawaii so I could just drive it. You know, anytime I want, I could just drive to California, I mean, to Hawaii and back. And, and the Lord looked at him and said, Do you realize how selfish that is? I mean, the cost that's going to be, the loss of lives that people are going to have to build that thing, and then the, the disruption to to trade from from different places that use the Pacific. It's just that's so selfish that you would even think that way. The ecological ramifications of that with all the—it's just so— and he said, you know what, Lord, you're right. I, I'm, you're right. I'm so selfish. I'm so sorry. So I just want to be able to totally understand my wife. I just want to be able to understand how she thinks and I completely understand how she feels and completely understand behind all of her emotions and completely understand all her complexities. God looked at him and nodded and said, "Do you want two lanes or four on that on that bridge?" Sometimes we just have to admit we're not quite as deep. Hello? Yeah. So I want to talk to you about, uh, there's, there's something I said this morning that I'm not going to go through that whole message again. I was a preaching this morning. This is kind of teaching this evening. But I said that God made you on purpose for a purpose. How many of you believe that? Yes. Yeah, you are not just a product of biology. God didn't wake up one day and go, oh, look, another kid. Uh, he, he, that wasn't him at all. He, he had you, He knew you and planned you and designed you before the foundation of the world. And the Bible says that you're fearfully, wonderfully made. And in that same passage, it says that God ordained. I don't understand how this works altogether, but God ordained all the days for you before there was one of them. So when those bad days that you thought you are by yourself, you never were. God was with you. He knew that. It, that wasn't a surprise to him. He didn't wake up one day when you found yourself in that terrible situation or you got that really bad news. He didn't wake up that day and say, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? He knew exactly what he was going to do because he made you on purpose for a purpose. And so I think when it comes to uh, I, I, I like to say that every single person has a leadership capacity. And the problem is that most of us will deselect from that list. If I said, How many leaders are there? Truly, every hand should go up. Because a moment ago I said, How many of you have kids? And most of the people raise their hands. That means you're a leader. If you're a single mom with two kids, you're a leader. If you're a 15 year old boy and you have a 12 year old sister, your parents expect some measure of leadership from you toward her. Is that true? So I think everybody, you may not be a born leader like, the, like some of the great ones that we see, but listen, 99% of the people in this room were not born leaders. We were just born, and God wants to develop us into leadership. So if you want to know the truth, I think leadership and maturity are cousins. So I want to talk to you tonight real briefly uh, in the first two points and then kind of dig down a little bit in the third point on three char- characteristics, three characteristics of a great leader. But really, these are really... Three characteristics of a maturing person. And by the way, when I say maturing, I'm not talking about chronologically. Because I don't know about you, but I know I'm an old guy. I'm 60. and Maybe that's not that old. My father died at 94. My uncle on that side died at 95. My, other, my grandfather on that side died at 93. So my wife says, Fletchers don't die, they just recycle. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. We'll find out when I get in my 90s. But... Um, I really believe that maturity is not the product of age. I, I think I, I've known people, you've known people that are young that have tremendous amount of maturity for their age. Haven't you, have not you seen that? Yeah, and then some people just get stuck because they don't respond with God's grace to the difficulties of life. They get stuck and they stop maturing. Have You ever seen that? You ever seen anybody that's older that should be more mature than they are but not be that mature? Anybody know what I'm talking about? I don't want to get in trouble here, so I might want to make sure we're on the same page. So I I think that these are the three qualities that are present in a person, no matter their age, who's maturing. And the first one is self-awareness. And and I'm just going to touch on this um, just for a moment, although I really do think that this topic of self-awareness deserves an entire sermon series. But I'm just going to do kind of a tip of the hat to it, uh, because when I was studying this sometime some months back, I did a little bit of research in some of the, some of the r- religious literature and then some of the secular literature on the idea of self-awareness, and here's what I discovered. I discovered that there are a couple of studies done. One was done at, at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which is one of the leading, um, w- one of the leading universities in the United States, and, and what they found, they, they published it as how to become a better leader, and what they said was that, and also there was one done by Harvard, And that was published in Forbes magazine, which is one of the leading magazines in the United States. And what they said was that the number one indicator of success, the number one predictor of success, that, would you like to know what the answer to that is? I mean, anybody wants to be successful in their marriage. I want to be successful in my marriage. Anybody else? I want to be successful in my family. I want to be successful in my job. I want to be successful in my relationship. So they're not talking about just financial success as in your job. They're talking about success in anything that you fill the blank in with. Success in marriage, success in family, all that. They said the number one of all of the characteristics, the number one predictor of success is self-awareness. Self-aware people win. Self-aware people get ahead. And those that lack self-awareness come across as immature. So I have a friend named Darren Patrick. He's a pastor in the United States. And so I want to give credit to him for this next, this next idea. He calls it the SAG, the self-awareness gap. So if you just take a look, this is where we see ourselves. And and to be honest, and we need to be honest, nobody in the room is completely self-aware. They have all those different type of tests out there. Have you ever heard of the Myers-Briggs test and the DIS test and the Enneagram? Anybody ever heard of that recently, the Enneagram? I'm apparently a three with a four wing. I hope it's good. I don't know what that is. My daughter's like an expert in that. One of my many daughters is an expert in that. Anyway, we never see ourselves completely as we are. And I think the first step towards self-awareness is realizing that, that the way I view myself may not be the way others view me. As a matter of fact, this diagram ought to produce a little bit of the fear of God in us because there are, there's the way we see ourselves and then there's the way that others experience you. And the gap between the way you see yourself and the way others experience you in the middle is your SAG, your self-awareness gap. And people don't believe you or people don't trust you. So it's really important to us, especially in relationships, marriage and family with our children, that people, that we close this gap between how we see ourselves and how others experience us, which is going to require humility. And I'll tell you what, if there's a character quality, we should aspire to its humility. The Bible says, with humility and the fear of the Lord come riches, honor, and life. Anybody want, anybody like to be wealthier? Okay, I know you're religious, spiritual people, but I'm going to raise my hand. I I could use more. Yeah, Sure. So riches, honor, who doesn't want honor, and life, life, you know, life in our marriage and life in our relationships. And so with humility and the fear of the Lord come riches, honor, and life. So that means we're going to have to listen to what other people say about us. That means we're going to have to ask questions of people who are close to us. And that means we're going to have to listen to our enemies because some of what they say is true. And every bit of, crit- and every bit of criticism is a seed of truth and the mature person is capable of digging into that criticism and mining out the part that's true without reacting to the other person. But you see, if I react to the other person, then I disregard not only them but what they said, and I miss something of what God is trying to send me through that criticism. Did y'all get that? That was good. I don't think I could say that again. Um, I need to write that down. So how we see ourselves and how others experience you, the the gap between those two is where people don't believe us and don't trust us. I want to move on to the second characteristic because I want to really get to and spend a few moments with the last one. The second characteristic of a person that's maturing is they have the capacity to correct themselves. They're self-correcting. I think there are three levels of correction. And and, and the first one is where someone else corrects you. And and we're all going to be in all three of these levels for the rest of our lives. But what we want to do is be a little bit less in level one and a little bit less in level two and a little bit more in level three. Let me, let me explain to you what I'm talking about. So level one of, of being self-correcting is someone else corrects you. And, and there's a bunch of verses on this, especially in the book of Proverbs. one of my favorite books in the Bible. In, in Proverbs chapter 26, verse three, it says, a whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. It says a whip for the horse. You want to motivate, you want to change the course of a horse's direction, you need a whip. A bridle for the donkey and a rod for the back of fools. And so all of us have areas in our lives where people come along and need to correct us. But it's, it's better if we can get there before they get to us and correct ourselves. Is that right? So when, it, when, a, when a child is immature and young, they require constant direction and, 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 and constant adjustment and constant correcting because... Foolishness is in the heart of a child, the scripture says. And so um, if we leave them alone, they'll be fools their whole life. And so we guide them and correct them. And so there needs to be some correction to us. If you're a person that that rebuffs when someone corrects you, you're never going to grow up. You've got to be able to be corrected, even by people who don't deserve to be able to correct you. You know what I found? Sometimes God will send somebody to me to bring an adjustment in my life that I struggle with. It would be so nice, so nice if God would always send adjustment to me through people who are further along than me in the Lord, hello, who are more mature than me, who I already look up to. If I could just say, Lord, I'm going to give you a list of people. And these are the people through whom you can send correction to me, and I will embrace it every single time. And God looks at that and says, no, because if you really want the correction to work, then the correction has to be coupled with humility, hello, if you really want the correction to work, the correction has to be coupled with humility. And when you couple correction with humility, then you can change. So, Michael, thank you for the list. I will rarely use those people. When I really want to make a change in your life, I'm going to send it through when I want to bring correction, when I want to add something, I going to send it through somebody that you tend to react to, that you don't respect, that you perceive as lower on the maturity list than you are. You're thinking, Lord, could I slip out of this meeting now and get out without anybody to notice? I could pretend I have to go, oh, I got a phone call. My wife is calling me. She's sitting behind you. Dang it. I guess I'm stuck. So a rod for the back of fools. Sometimes it takes that rod when we're being foolish from somebody we don't appreciate, don't respect. and God says, I'm bringing this to you, and I need you with humility to bite the bullet and receive it and therefore grow and change. Number two is when God corrects you. You think, well, shouldn't that be number three? I'll, I'll show you why in just a moment, why it's not. When God corrects you. In Psalm 32, verse eight and nine, it says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I'm glad for that. God says, I'm gonna instruct you. That's a promise. Thank you, Lord, I need that. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And then he warns us. Do not be like the horse or the mule. This sounds like the one we just read a moment ago. He's saying, look, let's, 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 let's work in level two. Don't, don't stay in level one. You need to mature. You're always going to be corrected a little bit in level one, but you need to mature out of that as much as you can. He says, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit or a bridle. Or it, will, it, or it will not stay near you. So God says, I want to come in and, and lead you and speak to you and correct you, but there's one higher. There's one higher, and that is where you correct yourself. So well, Michael, it should be number one that others correct you. Number two, correct yourself. Number three, God corrects you. No, no, you, you correct yourself because you know God's heart. You know God's heart. You know, um, when our kids were coming up, I would tell them, there's a level of obedience where you do what I say. But then there's a higher level of obedience where you do what I want without me having to say. Did you catch that? There's a level of obedience where you do what I say. And there are consequences if you don't. But the higher level of obedience, this is when you stop being a boy and you become a man. I don't care if you're 13 or 19 or 25. But when when you know my heart and you do what I want without me having to say. When, when I come in to look at your room and everything's straightened and beds made and your homework is done and all that, how's your done? How's the paper, wrote it yesterday. And you checklist, 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 checklist. So what I told them was freedom to your life comes through fulfilled responsibility. When you demonstrate that you're a responsible person, I and later your bosses will give you more freedom and more flexibility. So if you want freedom if you want flexibility, if you want space in your life, then you're gonna to have to be a self correcting person because you know what's in the boss's heart. Now, listen, if you do what's in your boss's heart without your boss having to tell you, your boss will translate that as loyalty. And there are two things that every boss wants in an employee loyalty and initiative. If they believe that you're for them, they'll trust you. And when it comes time for promotion, your name's gonna be on the list. And listen, I wrote a whole book on how to get promoted. And in that book I went to, I thought, you know, I'm a pastor, I should help people live better lives. But I thought, you know, I've had mostly one job my whole life. I've had some, you know, some some jobs when I was younger getting through Bible college, but I've been on the staff at a at a church since I was, I don't know, a kid. Twenty. Yes, twenty. So I went to some people who are makers and breakers of people's careers. I went to people who decide who gets promoted and who doesn't get promoted, entrepreneurs and military leaders and politicians at high rank and all those kinds of things. And I asked for interviews. And so I took months and sat with them and interviewed. What are the characteristics you look for in people you promote? What are the characteristics that people have that negative characteristics, which you will never promote? And, and one of the top ones was loyalty. And it's interesting how bosses perceive loyalty. It's not because you, you put a sticker of the company on your car. Loyalty, loyalty is when you do. Here's what they when you do what they want done without them having to ask you to do it. That that's two things they want. That's loyalty because they say this person knows what I'm thinking. This person has my heart. This person has me as the boss, and therefore this company in mind. So when you do what I want you to do without me asking you to do it, I'll take it as loyalty. By the way, it's also initiative, and the next up person to at least make the list for promotion is often you. It's one of the top things on the list. So when you, it, it's, it's a, when you can correct yourself. Now, I remember one time uh, I, I read this really great joke, and I love jokes. I mean, in every service, I always tell a joke. Some people come to church just for the jokes. It's a church growth technique. It's wonderful. <laughs> That's a lie. But we, we trained a bunch of young communicators, and I'm not going to go through the process. We meet with them during the week, and we're planting a bunch of churches. And so I got these young communicators. And most of them, when they first join the group, they, they listen to the joke and they go, that's never going to fly. And I just look at them and say, just be there. Every time these these people laugh and these young guys, they don't know a thing. There's a way to do it, right? There's a way to tell it and they don't know how. So, boom. Anyway, I was across the hallway from one of my staff members and I read this really great joke and it was hilarious. Um, and it wasn't profane as a nasty, but it, it was hilarious, but it it, it was just it should have been beneath me it wasn't profane it wasn't nasty no cuss words nothing immoral anything like that it just it just should have been beneath me so i left my office and i was walking over to to david's office and the holy spirit quickened my heart and he said you think this is funny but i don't that was all he said he didn't say don't say it he didn't say don't tell david so I stopped in the hallway, right in the middle. Probably People probably thought, he forgot what he's looking for. Because it was one of those, you look down at the ground, and, and when you get older, you think, I don't know what I came in this room for. <laughs> I wasn't 60, but it was, it was some years back. But anyway, I stood in the hallway, and I froze. And I, and I realized, I realized he didn't say, don't say it. So it's up to me to choose. So I went back in my office. I never told the joke. I read it, but never told the joke. Because I thought, you know what? I'm going to correct myself because you just showed me what your heart was there. That's out. That's out of bounds from here on out. The third level, the third point I want to make is the one I really want to camp on. So you've got self-awareness. And I think that's a choice we make. I want, in fact, if you'll say tonight, before we leave here, I purpose to come more, become more self-aware, your self-awareness will increase just by thinking about that topic. Number one, becoming self-aware. Number two, self-correcting. And then number three, I think this is the preeminent quality, self-feeding. And I want you to open your Bibles, if you will, and look at Mark. You don't have to open your Bibles because you just turn around. I'll just turn around and look at the screen. But um, Mark chapter 3, Jesus is, is with his disciples. And so here's what it says about this process. There's, and, and, I, and, and I want you to notice on the slide it says, being comes before doing. The truth is, it's the opposite when you're young. When you're young, life is about what you do. When you're first starting out in life, when you're first starting out in in business, when you're first starting out in ministry, first starting out in anything. When you're younger, it's all about doing. In fact, the Bible even says, a lad is known by his conduct, whether it's pure and right. So we start off doing, thinking that, that doing is the point. But it's not just doing husband, it's not just doing father, it's not just doing business, it's not just doing ministry, it's being a father. It's being a husband, two different things besides doing the things husbands do and being a husband, doing the things a father does and being a father. Do you understand what I'm saying? So so the priority though, even though you start off when you're young doing, the priority is to mature out of that doing and into being. In other words, you become someone. We all know that our greatest desire is to be shaped into Christ's image, right? So if if Christ could be formed in me as a father, he's a better father than I'll ever be. God's a better father than I'll ever be. God's a better mother than you'll ever be. God's a better husband. God's a better wife. God's a better boss. God's a better everything. So if Christ can be formed in me as I do these functions and I become more Christ-like, then I'm becoming something that kids and others can aspire to become. So Jesus, it's interesting when Jesus first gathers his disciples that he tries to make this point. Well, the Holy Spirit, at, in, in this passage here in Mark chapter 3, is making this point. And he went, up on, he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. So Jesus is choosing his disciples. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, that they might be with him. That's the first thing he said. The order here is important, that they might. Be with him. I read a book many years ago. I think it's. I think it's. It was a profound book. It's one of those ones that changed my life. Um, it's called The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. If you read it, you think I'm not into evangelism, but it's really. It's really deeper than just evangelism. I really am into evangelism. I hope you are, but it's deeper than that. The point that he made was Jesus came to make twelve disciples, not heal the crowd. Every miracle he did, he did to train these guys to be able to do what he did so he said i'll tell you what i'm going to do i'm going to prepare you i'm going to choose you 12 out of many so he went up on a mountain and he prayed all night and then when it was done he called all his disciples to him and then he took 12 of them so the whole point was to train to train those 12 and then have them go out and train and train discipleship turns out the great commission is making disciples you believe that yeah so that's a that's a great commission so the, the so the the order here is important he could easily have said he appointed the twelve to go out and preach and have authority over demons and heal the sick and that stuff because that's eventually what they ended up doing but the priority here he says first thing he did was he called them they might be say be they might be with him you know I look around I'm just going to be honest with you I look around and, and, and I'm not going to make comment on what happens in UK or in Europe because I don't really pay attention. It's not that I'm disrespecting, but I live in the United States. So I'm more accustomed to the pastors who are in the United States. And it seems that every time I turn around, some other famous pastor is in trouble. Some other famous pastors falling. And then you know what gets to me is that it's not just the, it's not just the famous ones because those are the ones we know. It's all the ones we don't know. It's all the ones we've never heard of. Matter of fact, what we're learning is that 15, 1,500 pastors leave the ministry every month, 16,000 a year. That's crazy. Um, They did a study and said in, I think it's, I think it's, is it in 20 years or 12 years? I can't remember. At the present rate of of the growth of the church and the size of the church, most churches are, the average church attendance in America is 74. So the the size of the churches are, if at at, at the present rate, if everybody that's in Bible college and everybody that's in seminary actually is called to full-time ministry, and many of those aren't, and if they all graduate and they all become a senior pastor, not just a staff member, At the present rate of of attrition, what we're losing and what we're adding and the growth of the church in the United States, we'll we'll have 100 million people in 12 or 20 years, I forget which, without a church. So the point is we need to plant more churches and grow them bigger, which we're really trying to do in order to be able to keep up. But see, here's the problem. Whenever we switch this around and we put the doing in front of the being, we get in trouble. I have a friend that... that, um, He he he's a counselor. He's never pastored a church over 200, but his calling is to is to counsel pastors of big churches. So he's involved in a in a bunch. He's been involved in a bunch of restorations of pastors who fell. And here's what he said. He said, "I've never met, I've never ever counseled or met a fallen pastor who had a vibrant, life-giving, real, devotional life." You think, wait a minute, pastors have to have a devotional lives. Yeah, but, you know. One man said, Jim Collins, as a matter of fact, one of the top business experts in the world. He said this about about pastors. He said that when you're a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, you've got to make your, the speech of your life to your constituency, the board, once a year. But when you're a pastor, especially in a fast-growing church, you've got to make the speech of your life to your constituency every single week. Every pastor knows Sunday's coming. And so tempting, I'm not just picking on pastors, I'm coming back to you in just a minute. It's so tempting to let your Bible study become about slip into sermon stuff. It's so easy to take a few moments during that devotional time in the morning when you should be connecting personally with Jesus to think about, hmm, Saturday, I gotta preach my sermon tomorrow. I'll just tell you, for me personally, I get up on Sundays, I have devotions first. People say, why do you have devotions on Sunday? You're going to go to church and worship. No, 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 that's corporate worship. What I do personally is my personal relationship with Jesus. So what if I said to my wife, hey, look, look, you know, it's Saturday. I'm not going to look at you or talk to you or have anything to do with you because, you know, Saturday, it's your day off, my day off. I'll go do my thing, you do your thing. Do you think she'd like that? Of course not. So here I'm telling God, Lord, it's your main day. People all over the world are going to come and worship you, but I don't have time this morning to personally connect because I need to go over my notes again. So, I have my devotions on Sunday morning and I'm with God and if it gets long, it gets long. And I'm in my prayer journal and there have been so many times when I thought I really need to go over these notes one more time and I don't have time. So I put them away and I say, I will trust God with that. If I'm full of him, it doesn't matter what I say. People are going to get touched and fed. If I'm not full of him, then I'm going to have to be slick and smart and cute and funny and I'm going to have to have some really slick sayings that people can write to. Ooh, that was good. And write that down. I'm going to have to do that. Jesus, it's interesting. These guys had, these guys are, they're so They're so jacked up. I mean, Jesus Jesus even says of these guys that he called to himself, he goes, oh, oh, ye of little faith. How much longer do I have to put up with you guys? Father, can you take me now? I mean, these, <laughs> you sure you want me to have these guys? I mean, I have another list. There's some other guys that, these guys are so jacked up. And yet Jesus says right from the start, he says, I, want, I don't want you to go to the doing part. I want you to start with the being part. And out of the overflow, be a father. Out of the overflow, see, I don't think it's just for pastors. Say, I want to be a better mom. You, can need, you need to learn how to be a self-feeder. You, you need to be able to get a hold, the being part, you need to be a mom, not just do mom. You need to be a father, not just do father. You need to be a salesman, not just do sales." You need to be. You need to become. So the Bible says here, he went up on a mountain, called those whom he desired. They came to him, and he appointed 12 whom he named apostles, that they might be with him, and out of the overflow, he might send them out to do the stuff. And I just proposed to you, I'm not criticizing you, but if you want to mature into the place God wants you to go, you're going to have to develop the skill of being a self-feeder. It's not on the notes, so it, now you have to get out your phone and go to Hebrews chapter 5. You don't have to, but I'm pretty persuaded if you don't, you won't go to heaven because you have to do what the preacher says. It's in the Bible somewhere. It isn't. It should be. So the writer of the book of Hebrews is, is talking to Hebrew believers who kind of are thinking because of the pressure on their lives to about sneaking back into Judaism and, and putting Christianity kind of in the background. And so he's making the case all throughout the book of Hebrews that Jesus is superior. Everything about Jesus is superior to the old covenant. And he comes to this place where he really wants to dig to dig, to, 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 to dig down and to dive deep into this area of Melchizedek, this guy named Melchizedek from the Old Testament who I'm not going to talk about now, but he can't. Now, what's interesting is that he later goes on and gives you two chapters on Melchizedek, Melchizedek. Um, but for these people who are his readers, he says about this, about Melchizedek, I have much to say in, in chapter 5, verse 11. I have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you become dull of hearing. Excuse me? You, what? Dull of hearing. Say it again? Not that kind of hearing. He, he's not talking about these years. He's talking about these years. You know, when we're born again, before we're born again, our spirit's dead. You know that, right? Because the Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So my body wasn't dead. My soul wasn't dead. My spirit was dead. So the Bible says when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made you alive. So when I was born again, I was made alive. Was my body made alive? No. My soul, mind, will, and emotions made alive? No. What was made alive? My spirit. So I had a dead spirit. Could not connect with God. Then I was born again, called the regeneration, Holy Spirit created a new heart, gave me repentance and faith. I repented either on my bedside or at, at a Christian concert or in some church. I repented, and I was born again, and my spirit was made alive. Thereafter, I'm responsible to develop my spiritual senses, to dispel it my, to develop my spirit. And, and you can get that a little bit in here, but you really get that when you get personal face-to-face, heart-to-heart with him. That's where That's where that grows. And so when he's talking about you've become dull of hearing, he's not talking about y'all need hearing aids. He's talking about your spirit has become, you've neglected your spiritual development. You've let this pressure from the world in the form for them of persecution, but our pressure can come from a thousand different angles. You let the pressure of the world press you out of that place with Jesus. And as a consequence, you're, you're instead of growing more, instead of growing sharper and deeper in your spirit's connection to the spirit, you're getting a little bit more dull, or, or, or you're thinking that you can go to church, and that's where you have your ex- spiritual exercise, and forget about your own personal relationship, and so he goes on to say, he says, by this time, for, for those, by this time, you ought to be teachers, you had, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracle of God, you need milk, not solid food, now, um, my wife nursed all eight of our kids, so she became like, and she still is, kind of like the, 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 the nursing expert. She's, you know what a doula is? A lot of the, all of our daughters say, would you come be the doula at our, after the baby's born? So my wife comes and helps them, all that kind of stuff. And um, she's always having young ladies come into her office to talk about questions about that. But So I know a little bit because I'm in the same family as my wife, who's brilliant. Um, but the thing is, milk is when somebody else goes and eats, digests, assimilates it, and then puts the vitamins into a drinkable form and they drink it. That's what happens on Sundays. It's milk. So, well, that's bad. No, that's not bad. In fact, let's read on. It's bad if that's all you get. He says in, y'all still like me? Okay, good, because you're quiet looking at me with those mean faces, and I'm trying to figure out, <laughs> is that an exit? Because I don't know. I feel like I'm trapped. So, he says, you need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives only on milk. Ah, I love that idea that says only on milk. Everyone who lives only on milk is not skilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature. That's what we're talking about here tonight, isn't it? Solid food is for the mature. So could you define the mature for me? Yes, I can. Next part of the verse. But solid food is for the mature. For those who by reason of use have trained their senses to discern both good and evil. In other words, to be able to decide this is God and this is not. So we can't neglect that part, being a self-feeder. So what I want to do is is I want to tell you a quick story. Um, How am I doing on time? I forget what time I started. I didn't look either. Now, for those of you who are new in church, this is a really bad sign. (laughs) The preacher didn't look, that means. You know the other thing? Um, This little boy was in church with his friend, and and. Um, so everyone knelt, so they knelt, and the little boy said, what's that about? That's because we're going to pray. Then everyone stood, so the little boy stood next to his friend, and he looked at his friend, he said, what does that mean? He said, that means we're going to praise. So then everyone sat down, so the little boy sat down with his friend and said to his friend, what does that mean? That means the preacher's going to preach. And then the preacher took off his watch and laid it beside the, the Bible, and the other little boy said, what does that mean? And the kid said, nothing. I'll, I'll not be that guy. <laughs> I think David is a preeminent example of being a self-feeder, and I just want to show you this in his life. Um, David's been through it. So David, and, and we, do, we don't have all the answers, but um, just kind of follow me as I tell the story, okay? So David David and his father have a relationship that's broken. And um, there's there's actually an Old Testament uh, writing It's not, excuse me, not Old Testament. There's actually an ancient Hebrew writing that talks about David's relationship with his father, which someone sent to me after they heard me teach on this, that, kind of, that verifies what I'm getting ready to say. So David has, has a bro- broken relationship with his father. How do you know that, Michael? Because Jesse's a wealthy man. Jesse has servants, and servants take care of sheep. It's dirty business. It's a dangerous business. It's not a, it's not a business for a 15-year-old boy. That's a fact. There are no cell phones. There, there, there are no, there are no ATVs, all-terrain vehicles. Um, you don't shepherd on a horseback. When you go out in the countryside, it's you and the wild animals and the sheep, and you sleep in the, in the, in the open. There's not a tent. And when it's cold, you're cold. If, if you haven't, if you lose a sheep, you don't get to eat. You're hungry. So Jesse's wealthy. We, we know that because we go deeper into David's story, we find out that when David goes to the valley of Elah where the Philistines are supposed to be fighting the Israelites and the Israelites supposed to be fighting the Philistines and Goliath comes out and does his thing. Um, We know then that David was able to run that errand for his father because he he put the, the sheep with servants. So David's out taking care of the sheep and the Bible says that a bear comes along and tries to steal one of the lambs. And I'll be honest with you. I'm just going to be frank with you. If I'd been a 15-year-old boy, maybe 16, but no older, and I'm taking care of the sheep, and my daddy doesn't even know that I've had lambs out here, because you're out there for months at a time. He doesn't even know that lambs were even born, and some bear came out and grabbed one, I'd say, more power to you, dude, eat it, because don't eat me. I'm not going to risk my life. Hey, what do I owe this man? He, are you kidding me? I've got brothers who are back at home. Living like rich boys, and I'm out here risking my life every single day. I don't know what I did to him, but he doesn't like me. There's a broken relationship there. You'll see. Then, then a lion comes along and wants one of the little sheep. Out. Go ahead, you can have him too. Now, you're. The Bible says he risked his life to honor his father. He risked his life. He took the beard. He took the, the, the lion by the beard and the, and the and the bear by the beard, and he fought him, and pulled the lamb out of their mouth and nursed it back to health. So Saul's a bad king, and God laments that he made him king. God speaks to the prophet Samuel to go to the house of Jesse and ordain a new king. Jesse's afraid of Samuel, and he says, I don't think this is a good idea. If Samuel finds out, I went to um, Jesse's house, then Samuel will kill me. And so, excuse me, Saul will kill me. So the Lord spoke to Samuel the prophet and said, go at the feast and say, I'm going to eat the feast with you. And then when you're at the feast, ordain one of the boys king, I'll tell you which one. So he goes to the, he goes to the house and, and I'll make a long story short. He goes to the house and, and um, the, the food is ready, but they don't sit down. You can read the story yourself. They don't sit down, he walks in and he pretty much announces what he's there for. I'm gonna ordain one of these boys king. Let's get right to it because that's my mission from God. I gotta get that done. And so he goes to Eliab, the oldest one, and he starts to lay his hand on him and, and make him the king. And the Lord speaks to him and says, this one I have rejected. That's a strong word, but I have rejected, not Passover. He said, I've rejected this one. I've considered him rejected. And then he goes to the next one. No, goes to the next one. No, goes to the next one. No, And finally, the Lord spoke to Samuel and said, look, I don't, I don't look at people like you look at people. I look at people from the heart. I look from people from the inside out. You're looking from the outside in, from height on down. Got the wrong one. He goes through all of them. And then Samuel turns to Jesse and says, Don't you have any more boys? Is this it? Because I know I can hear from God and I've been through all that you've got here and God says no to all of them. And Jesse kind of sheepishly says, "Well, there's one more. But he's he's a he's a ruddy one. He's 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 a boy's boy. And um he's not here." Why would you do that? I mean, if the I live in the United States, so let me use my politician, okay? So if, no, I'll use the queen. So, because yours is better. Um, <laughs> if the queen said to you, I'm coming to your house, I want to meet your family, would you bring everybody? your wife, your kids, you, you bring it, you, who, who can we have there? You might bring your sister and, and your, your brother-in-law and you might bring your nephews. You might bring everybody in there. I'm going to come and visit you. So Samuel is, it, it, not just that, but th- then you've got to take the greatest religious leader and build, because Samuel is the greatest, he's the greatest political leader and the greatest spiritual leader in the nation. So it's not just one, it's two things in one. And he comes to us, so why, is, is it so difficult Jesse, is it so difficult to send a servant out for one meal to care for these sheep so your youngest son, David, can come and experience being in the presence of possibly the greatest prophet, well, not possibly, definitely the greatest prophet in that area and the last judge in Israel? Could you not spare one servant one hour? Did you even think about inviting him? Was it something that you just forgot, or did you think about it, which is worse, and said no? But that's what happened. So Samuel says, We don't eat until you get him in the room. So you go, Yo, dude, Samuel's here and he's pissed. You got to get here. (laughs) You're going to fry daddy. I'm just saying right now, fire's going to come down or something. He's, you just get here. No cell phone. No flashlight, and you've got how many acres? We're going to stand here till you find him. Okay, boys, Uh, anybody know where he normally goes? No, he's been gone for three months. Go that way, go that way, go that way. Finally, they bring him in, and they ordain him as king. So fast forward, he gets ordained king, but nothing happens. Everybody goes back to their business. David goes back out and tends the sheep and writes the psalms. you read the psalms you see an angst in there don't you sometimes he says Lord you've forsaken me why am I by myself and these troubles and these trials have come upon me and then he goes on he says but but you know what, you've been there before. I've been in that place before and you met me there and you helped me and, and, and you're a good God and a strong God and a mighty God and you have no, you've never, you're undefeated. So you can help me and, and I can, and, and you help me bend the bow and you help me to be a warrior and to win and to succeed. You watch the Psalms and he goes from down in the dumps and he's able to feed himself and get what he needs from God. And so one day, Jesse sends some shepherd out there or a servant out there to take care of the sheep and he says, go to the battle line and I want you to find out what's going on with your brothers because it's been 40 days. No news for 40 days. And so this is a signal. Finish. <laughs> Got it. So it's been 40 days. And here's what's been happening in those 40 days. Israelites were in the, in the crest of the valley of Elan on the other side of the Philistines. And down into the, to the valley comes this Philistine and he defies the army of God. And it really, it, it, here's what it really is. Somebody has to, it's an honor thing. Somebody has to go down to that valley and fight him and die so we can join the battle. Until then, we're humiliated every day. So twice a day, Goliath goes down and there and says, where's your God? Your God is weak and you're intimidated and, and, and the people are weak because God is weak. There's nothing you can do about me. And so 40 days, twice a day, 79 times that happens. On the 40th day, the second time, David shows up with wine and cheese for the commander to find news to take back to his father about Eliab and the other two oldest brothers are fighting with Saul. And David gets her and says, he says, "What? who is this uncircumcised Philistine to defy the armies of the living God? And they said, oh man, Saul's looking for anybody to go down there and fight that guy. He'll take anything. In fact, he said, whoever does it, he'll give his daughter to him in marriage and his family, here's the big deal, his family will be tax-free in Israel. Well, so never again will you have to pay taxes. Just need somebody to go down there and, and die for the cause. And David says, excuse me, tell me again, what will be given to them? He can't believe it. You mean there's no warrior here who knows God deeply enough that God can use to demonstrate victory through the week? Because, and he's thinking to himself, and so, so they call him before Saul and say, this guy says he's going to go down and die. He you're just a kid. I mean, we do need somebody to die. Because no one can beat Goliath. But I hate to send a kid. So it really is embarrassing to do that. And David said, no, no, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Because when the bear came against me, I grabbed him by the beard. When the lion came against me, I grabbed him by the beard. Why? Because I know how to get a hold of God in those tough moments. I've been in some tough moments. This is, he's no bear. He's no lion. So he goes down in the valley. And, and the Bible says that when he got there, the Goliath looked at him and said, what am I, a dog that a boy comes out against me? Go back or I'll feed your body to the birds. And he cursed him by his gods. And David said, David said, no, your body will feed them. Because you come against me with a sword and a spear. But I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he will give me the victory. So the Bible says that, that David took five smooth stones from the brook and went after Goliath. Can I, let me ask you a question. Where Where's the brook flow? On the top of the hill or in the valley? And where was Goliath? In the valley. So David went down the hill to kill Goliath with no rocks in his pouch. He wasn't trusting in rocks. He didn't need the rocks. He had the name. So he gets in the valley. He picks up five rocks. The Bible says Goliath cursed him and started coming at him. And David ran at Goliath. He ran at him. And he took this stone and he slung it and it hit him in the forehead. I think God guided that stone. I think David could have thrown it in the wrong direction. The wind would have got it, taken it back. So David kills Goliath, becomes part of Saul's company, and he becomes a great leader for Saul. And, but Saul goes mad in jealousy. And he, David hasn't done anything wrong. It's 20-something years. He's still not king. He hasn't done anything wrong. He runs from Saul. And I'm going to uh, close with this final story here. Thank you for your patience. So he finally goes to the Philistines and he says, I'll just live among the Philistines. But the first time he goes to the Philistines, he's kind of found out and he says, that's the guy that's my greatest enemy. And so David pretends to be crazy and he goes away and he has 400 men. Now he's grown to 600 men and he got 600 men in there and the flocks and the herds and the wives and the kids. And it's just a matter of time before we get caught. So he goes to the commander He goes to Achish of the Philistines and he says, listen, I, I promise you, I will not raid against you. I just need you to let me live among you, because Saul's going to kill me. And, and Achish thought, you know what? If I make him my friend and I keep him close, then he won't fight against me because he lives in my territory. So he said, Here's what I want you to do: go to Ziklag. Ziklag's three days away. Pretty smart. So if you come against me, I got three days to find out. So David does raids and he pays tribute. He pays tribute to Achish, and Achish starts to love him and says, well, You're going to be my, you're, you're the commander of my bodyguard. I trust you. So one day, Saul decides to go out against the Philistines. This, I'm almost done. He wants to go out against the Philistines to fight them. And so the five lords of the Philistines show up to fight with King Achish, and so does David. He said, I've been loyal. Um, he's been rejected his whole life. He says, I've been loyal, I've been faithful, I've done everything, even God ordained me 20-something years ago, I'm still not king. But I'll serve him. So when, when he gets there, the five lords of the Philistines say, what's he doing here so he's been faithful I mean he pays tribute he's been he's like my bodyguard and they said he can't go out with us so we won't go he's gonna turn on us in battle so Achus says David sorry you can't go so you got to think about he's been Imagine how much disappointment how much rejection has this man carried finally humbles himself to hide among his enemy and even his enemy rejects him. so he goes back to Ziklag and it says in here, 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 30, verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against Negev and against Ziklag to make matters worse. And they had overcome Ziklag. This is the place where David and the 600 men and their families are living. And they burned it with fire and taking captive the women and all who were in it, both great and small. They killed no one, but they carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. How much heavier can life get? What's he gonna do? Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept till there was no more strength. David's two wives, were in, mentions who they are. Verse six, and David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him. You have got to be kidding me. Man, I took you guys in You're wanderers, you're wayfarers, you're rejected. I took you in, I made an army out of you and now you all want to kill me. Now my own guys are going to stone me to death. What do you do in that moment? David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and his daughters. So David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. There it is, self-feeder. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, now watch this. The son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Now the ephod is what priests wear to hear from God. So at this moment, if anybody needs a word from God, it's David. Abiathar wearing the ephod is milk. Abiathar, you're the priest. Put on the ephod. Go away. Hear from God for me. But watch what he says. David said to Abiathar, the priest, son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. I imagine the conversation, David, I'm your priest. I wear the ephod, Abiathar, I don't need you to hear from God for me. I've got my own vine and my own fig tree. I've got my own source. I've got my own relationship with God. I don't need you to get between me and him to find out what God wants to do in this moment. I don't need that. So David put on the ephod and inquired of the Lord. Shall I persuade after this band? Shall I overtake them? The Lord said, pursue them for you shall overtake them. You shall surely rescue. And in the Bible, look, you got to read between the lines. But the Bible says, so David set out, and the six hundred men who were with him. Wait, just five minutes ago, they had stones in their hands and they were going to kill him. What happened? David, David went in and got in the presence of God. This is mature. This is what makes a leader. David gets in the presence of God. Ask one question: Are these guys going to be like Goliath? I know I'm the only one that's going to go out because these guys are going to try and stone me. I don't know what your plan is for that, but I just need to know. Do I pursue these guys to get my wife and kids back? God said, you go, son, I'll be with you. David walked out of that tent, and I'm sure the guys are holding the stones, and David walked right past. Where are you going, David? I'm going to go get my wife and kids back. And they dropped their rocks and their stones, and they came and joined him because he had a vine and a fig tree. See, if we feel like we're limited, if we feel like we've run up against a wall, feel like we haven't grown in a while, I recommend we've got to be self-feeders. Sorry, I went over, but let's bow our heads and pray. Just tell the Lord. Just tell the Lord that you want to be with Him, not just do for Him. Yes, do for Him, but not just do for Him. You don't want to just live on what you ought to come to church every single week. Yes, it's good to drink milk. But we've got to learn to be self-feeders. Father, in Jesus' name, we just, just, just pray after me in your heart. Just pray after, not out loud, but in your heart, Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus Christ and I repent. If this this applies, just say, I repent, Lord. I've let somebody else do all the feeding for me. I've let somebody else digest the food for me. But from here on out, from here on out, you are my vine. You are my fig tree. You are my source. I will live off what you provide. You're my substance, you're my Lord, you're my God, you're first in Jesus' name.